Welcome to Culture Camp. On today's episode, a year after the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, the boys revisit the graveyard of empires with a bit more of a historic perspective. Gavin reminds us that Kabul was a hippie destination in the 1960s, Sean summons up the ghost of William Seward, and together they try to understand why democracy failed in a tribally oriented culture. You can email us at culturecamp.cast at gmail.com. That's K-U-L-T-U-R-E-K-A-M-P dot cast at gmail.com to send comments, questions, and topic ideas. Remember to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, as well as on Twitter at culturecampcast and on minds.com at culturecamp. All right, welcome back to Culture Camp. Today, we're going to talk about a uh, an interesting subject because we started out when we were going to do this episode talking about Afghanistan and the aftermath of 9-11. Uh, we're about a week after the uh, anniversary of 9-11, and so we thought that we might revisit that and revisit the, the fall of Afghanistan back to the Taliban. But then when we started discussing it in the context of some of the other things that, that we've been reading, uh, we started talking about democracy and liberal democracy and the way that that was instituted in Afghanistan and why that eventually collapsed and uh, what it says about democracy as a whole. Uh, so, you know, just the background, the United States invaded Afghanistan after 9-11 uh, because the Taliban there had hosted uh, Osama bin Laden, who was responsible for the for 9-11, for the terrorist attacks in uh, New York City and the attack on the Pentagon. And um, we overthrew the Taliban and uh, attempted to, we in a, an international coalition, attempted to create a modern-style state there, a centralized state and uh, with its own military that uh, would unify the country and uh, be able to to modernize the country uh, and eventually the Taliban retreated uh, at, you know the Taliban retreated and then surged back into the country and managed to take control of portions of it and when the United States finally pulled out uh, last year uh, the country fell back into the hands of the Taliban after uh, 20 years of warfare um, and so I think that that raises some some serious questions about uh, you know, why Afghanistan was, didn't sustain the political project that the, you know, international community uh, wanted to to carry out there and why the Taliban were able to raise back to power. Well, uh, I happen to actually have read, or I'm in the middle of reading, uh, I've read sort of all over parts of it, I've read about halfway through it, but a book that has to do directly with this, and it's called Afghanistan, A Cultural and Political History by Thomas Barfield. Barfield. And uh, uh, Thomas, Thomas Barfield is an academic who went and he lived in Afghanistan, I think, for like 15 years. And of all the accounts I have ever read of the political history of Afghanistan uh, and its current political goings on, I think this is the single most informative uh, cogent series of arguments I've ever seen. Uh, it made me question some of the things I already believed, but it also already sort of like affirmed things that I assumed about what was happening in Afghanistan and why uh, ultimately it ended in failure for the U.S. And it goes sort of directly back to these larger topics that we were talking about, about some of the larger problems with democracy. 
and how the modern world perceives democracy and what the problems of trying to impose democracy on a non-democratic state is. Uh, so trying to come up with the best way to segue into this conversation, at least for me, uh, I was thinking a lot about, because I was teaching a class on this, whenever I get to the 90s, I always bring up Francis Fukuyama's book about the end of history. Mm -hmm. uh, with the death of the Soviet Union, there was sort of this euphoria that took over the 1990s. And it was that with the death of the Soviet Union, the last great experiment in uh, human history, that we finally found the answer. We found the end of history. What he means by the end of history is the end of struggling for an ideal political system. And that that struggle ends in liberal democracy and throughout the 90s. And you see it in popular culture. You see it in the policies of the State Department uh, that the U.S. basically bought in hook, lie and sinker, that the best possible form of government to rule over affairs is is this sort of capitalist form of liberal democracy. And that became such an integral part of our foreign policy, not only dealing with China in the 1990s. There were people in the State Department uh who thought it was a good idea to give China money because they felt like it would incentivize them to become more liberal and democratic, mm -hmm. the wealthier they got. But really that it, that set of ideologies comes into its own in the Bush administration after nine 11 with the invasion of Afghanistan. So the way that Thomas Barfeld puts it is why did the international order trying to impose a democratic regime on Afghanistan fail? Put as roughly as I can, because he writes an entire book detailing how and why this happens. It basically has to do with the fact that the international order, a.k.a. the United States uh, leading it, uh, came in and they tried to create a system that, as he put it, is built for autocrats uh, in a system that has historically had its own political traditions uh, to which had no basis in modern ideas. And they felt like any sort of modern political order could be validated through elections. And mm -hmm. in many of the local traditions of the very heterogeneous groups of Afghanistan, uh, democracy and elections didn't really play a vital role uh, in their political life. And there certainly were politics, you know, uh, we would say they're more tribal than democratic, but the politics are there. And that really didn't, our politics did not make sense to the various tribal groups inhabiting Afghanistan, uh, and just as vice versa. And it was pretty much the refusal to ever acknowledge this rift in ideology that led to the failure of that state and the failure of that project. Yeah. Uh, one of the ways that I've seen it described is that, the, you know, the, in Afghanistan, they attempted to create a uh, very modern national state with a national style army. Right. That was neutrally recruited. Right. It wasn't tribal militias or or regionally based but instead was was a national army and um you know most of the places that have this sort of army went through or, or that sort of structure where they have a strong centralized government like you think of france or britain or the united states went through centuries of uh waves of centralization and uh, elimination of regional differences like i think france is the the archetype of this a place that you know a few hundred years ago had you know, we think of French as a single language, but a few hundred years ago, it had multiple different uh, languages, some of which were very different from one another. And uh, over time, they imposed, you know, a single language and a, a single uniform system on the country, especially in the aftermath of the French Revolution, but in successive waves after that. And so when you try to 
create that kind of society on top of a society that is very tribally based and very fragmented in the way that Afghan society was, uh, you know, you can't the the ostensible political legitimacy that comes from from having elections, for example, is not enough to summon up the loyalty and the credibility or loyalty to and credibility of uh, a state like that. Uh, when you don't have that you know, sort of uh, institutional and uh, cultural ground prepared, right? So it's it's something completely uh, inorganic to Afghan society that was placed on top of it, and it was we were able to do that because it was supported by a whole bunch of military aid, including soldiers from other countries, including NATO. Uh, as well as you know, massive amounts of foreign aid. So it wasn't actually getting its as you know all of its money or men and materiel from the society itself, because there's no way that the society itself could have uh, could have provided those things based on the institutions that already existed. And so it's it's interesting to ask why that was done instead of building a society, you know, a, a set of governmental institutions that were more organic to what Afghanistan had. And it seems like that sort of, uh, I guess some people would call it neoliberal triumphalism of the uh, of the 90s and and the early 2000s is one reason why that was done. Is it it seems like people felt like it was a moral obligation to build this particular kind of state. Uh, in Afghanistan, though it may also have just been that the the states that were building, you know, built things that looked like themselves because they thought that that was that was you know that's what they're used to, and so it enters as a default to some degree. So the story that once that uh, I get from Barfield about it is that Barfield, I'm sorry, is that for a very very long time, but the really detailed history starts in you know the 1740s with the with uh, the inception of something called the Durrani dynasty is that mm-hmm. Afghanistan never really had a strong central government and whenever it does have a strong central government it has an outside patron which is how it's able to enforce its rule because what happens that afghan uh, like you know there's no one single major ethnicity that makes up Afghanistan there's Balochis and Pashtuns and all sorts of groups and uh, what happens is some empire comes in or some dynasty comes in. It's like Muhammad Zai or uh, Durrani. They come in and they take over Kabul and they're like, all right, we're in charge now. Uh, pay us taxes. And as long as people pay their taxes, uh, I think one of the quips he uses in, the, is, in this book is they pretend to rule us and we pretend to be ruled. And it's actually really kind of a great, it's kind of a great example of like a successful long running semi, uh, semi anarchical experiment, at least in large scale, because obviously on the tribal level, uh, there are very strict hierarchies and it's not anarchic, but on the state level mm-hmm. it is. And it's stable and it's functional, except whenever outside powers come in and metal. Case in point, uh, the two times in the 19th century, the British attempt to invade uh, and the Russians also invade. Is so what happens is there's only a there's only a small number of dynasties in Afghanistan historically that were even allowed to compete for power to be seen as legitimate. And so if you were going to compete to be a monarch, you knew who your competition was going to be. And it's not going to throw the entire country into civil war. People eventually eventually accept who becomes king. Now what happens mm-hmm. uh, with the British invasion with the British invasion and later on with the Russian invasion is that uh in order to fight off these foreign invaders, all these different tribal groups do have to band together, and they do actually manage to repel the invaders multiple times. Uh, that you know, 
Afghanistan is called the graveyard of empires because they defeat the British quite badly, actually. Uh, but the cost of that is that uh, the internal dynamics of Afghanistan sort of changes because you have all these different tribal groups who just sort of stay in their corner of Afghanistan uh, and they like to be left alone. And they've had to throw in a stake in defeating the British, but now the central government, the dynasty, isn't willing to share power. And right. that conflict dragged on all throughout the 20th century. Uh, you finally get to the 1990s uh, in the Taliban. So after the collapse of like the Soviet regime, eh, like 1992, uh, the Taliban takes power in 1995. As Barfield says, the Taliban articulated themselves in Islamic terms, but they were actually a large group of Pashtuns just sort of imposing uh, their their ethnic ways through this strict interpretation of Islam uh, right. on the country. So this... Yeah, that's one one of the claims that I've heard about their their return to power is that this is essentially Pashtun supremacy and that they've... You know, that's why, like, for example, the Northern Alliance controlled territory where it did in the far north uh, east of the country because that's where all of the, the Central Asian groups that are non-Pashto live, right? Yeah, that's the, so, the Uzbeks and so the Tajiks. What you basically get, so if you look at Af a map of Afghanistan, Afghanistan is basically like, imagine a ring, uh, mm -hmm. like this, or imagine like a ring highway going through the center of it. And the very north, you have Mazar-e-Sharif, uh, and then the east, you have uh, Kabul, and the south, you have Kandahar, and in the west, uh, you have Herat. And what happens is during the initial invasion in 2001, uh, you have JSOC come in. So, you know, you have American mm -hmm. Special Operations Command come into Afghanistan. Uh, they come into Mazi Sharif, which is where the Northern Alliance is based out of. This is mostly, from my understanding, a Tajik alliance. And they actually incite an uprising and they, they assist an uprising that while there are Americans there, uh, it is majority Afghans of all different ethnic stripes rising up against uh, the Taliban, and eventually driving them down to Kandahar, and then eventually driving them into Pakistan. And the Taliban mm -hmm. doesn't actually make inroads uh, back into Afghanistan until after the Battle of Tora Bora, until after 2002, when they slowly start seeping into the country. But there was this moment at the very beginning, in the first few months, so it was like November of 2001, right? Mm -hmm. uh, where the U.S. did work with other ethnic groups in Afghanistan, uh, to kick the Taliban out, and they succeeded in doing so, and they did so mm -hmm. with the positive support of Afghanistans. I think the mistake was made was that when is, uh, is whenever the U.S. Uh, under the veil of Operation Enduring Freedom, which was this this global war on terror, is the operational name for it, uh, was that okay? We're not just going to help get rid of the Taliban. We're actually going to try to impose a government on Af in Afghanistan. And that, you know, historically, it never worked uh, back during the Spanish-American War, whenever, you know, Taft, before he became president, uh, he was appointed uh, as the commissioner of like this progressive American government in the Philippines, where they tried to install mm -hmm. these democratic reforms. And it turns into a war because the Filipinos don't like it. But yeah, it's uh, as as so, funnily enough, the, the way that I've heard about that is by studying Filipino martial arts. Uh, is because the, they, the people in that community look back at that war as the origin of a whole bunch of, of things in those martial traditions and uh, have a great deal of respect for the Filipinos for their ability to, to basically fight the United States military, which is one of those things that's, that, you know, looking back, uh, you know, uh, that's like when the, we started having the model 1911 pistols. 
right? Because we needed things that had more stopping power because of the attacks that were that were being conducted on U.S. soldiers. Um, but yeah, I mean, it turns into a grinding war uh, because there are elements of the Philippines that don't want to be under American rule and uh, don't want to be under the rule of the the you know sort of centralized government we're trying to put in there. Um, so you know, in the in the case of Afghanistan, uh, it seems like you know I was asking you this question after after JSOC and the Afghans you know pushed the Taliban out. You know, I, I recall seeing the the videos during that time, uh, where you know Afghans were getting their their beards shaved off and they were enjoying you know because uh, Western media and um, and you know flying kites again that kind of, and all of these things that had been banned uh, they're enjoying. And I think the question that I asked you is like you know at what point did the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan or the overthrow of the Taliban, you know, where where was the mistake there that led to the situation where the Taliban came back into power? Because we we did that, the Afghans did that, um, and then the, the Taliban were forced out, and then we attempted to form a new government. And uh, it, we formed it on the template, it seems like, that I described earlier. Um, I remember there was an, an attempt briefly to restore the afghan monarchy that was aborted yeah right but but you know you having read more about this what at what point does it seem like you know we we made the mistake and why'd we make it uh so the exact moment that the the, the mistake was made is whenever the united states defense bureaucracy decided that it was time to make a state uh, whenever it decided that it was going to try to uh, first restore the monarchy and then create a democratic state in Afghanistan, because what happened is uh, it was the failure. It represented the failure to understand one very key thing: the Taliban. Once again, it, you know, it goes around saying, and it's it's Islamic, and indeed, you know, Taliban. They're students. What are they students of? They're students of Islamic knowledge. Uh, but they're largely Pashtuns. And whenever you said after the invasion, after the Northern Alliance and all these other ethnic groups uh, helped push out the Taliban, people are going around celebrating and they're shaving off their beards. And that's because the Taliban was preventing Afghanis from being Afghanis just as much as any other outside invader. And that the only thing that should have been done is the U.S. Because what happened is the reason uh, we went to Afghanistan is is uh because of their affiliation with Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, right? Mm -hmm. And our failure to capture Osama bin Laden after 2002, after the Battle of Tora Bora, and then him sort of relocating into Pakistan, that's whenever this turned into a forever war. And with the forever war, you needed a justification for the United States to be there. And so pretty much as soon as we didn't go, okay, we're going to take care of the threat, we're going to take care of the Taliban, we're going to take care of Osama bin Laden, which are not that they're not interchangeable. They're not the same thing. We're going to take care of these problems in Afghanistan, but we're not going to try to reform Afghani society. We are going to allow the Afghanis to rule to rule their society in the way they have historically. I think that's where the mistake was made. Uh, because we just sort of assumed that we would impose an order on Afghanistan, and that order uh, would be... Uh, would be accepted as long as it was sort of fortified by an election, because in the West, we believe that uh, an appeal to plebiscite solves all problems, right? It's the general will, it's the will of the people. Uh, and so we can sort of ignore any other historical concerns. We can ignore the fact that democracy and voting is not a part of thousands of years of Afghani tribal tradition. 
Mm-hmm. So that's where I think that I think uh, I don't know the exact moment within the United States defense bureaucracy that the decision to make an Afghanistan a state in Afghanistan was made. I'm for I'm sure that for some people very very high up they knew it before we ever even invaded. Mm-hmm. But but the first the first few months in Afghanistan with JSOC assent uh, with JSOC assisting the Northern Alliance and the Tajiks pushing. Uh, the Taliban out, there was sort of this euphoria that the United States is here to liberate us. And as soon as the larger U.S. force comes in and begins to establish a government, that euphoria dies very quickly. It dies in the beginning of 2002. Yeah, when you talk about establishing a state, I mean, it seems like there was going to be some kind of state in Afghanistan regardless, right? Prior to the Soviet invasion, uh, the, the, the communist coup that happened in the the 70s that that established a a government there and overthrew the monarchy and then there was an invasion by the Soviet Union in support of that government right um they they had a you know sort of functioning uh society with a government in Kabul you know it was like even a hippie destination you know yeah. in the, yeah. the 60s <laughs> right um you know so so clearly there was there were 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 at where at one point before this uh, communist overthrow and before the Taliban, indigenous institutions that were capable of governing the country or of letting parts of the go- country govern themselves. Uh, but it seems like we had, you know, that th- we had a specific vision of a state and of the operation of a state that that we wanted, and that the international community, uh, you know, to to use a phrase to refer to all the people involved or the the entities involved, wanted there. Um, and it's interesting because it doesn't seem like, uh, that state was, was simply, you know, purely democratic or purely a democratic expression of the, the will of the Afghan people, right? Not least because it was externally funded by all of these, these governmental groups, but, you know, it was kind of designed to have the, the forms of governance and things of that nature that, that the, State Department and other world government, you know, other other governments of countries, all wanted right, like uh, you know, all of this work to try and promote like gender parity and other things like that that were not really, uh, I would say, indigenous uh, values in Afghanistan. And I'm I'm not talking about just at the basic level like providing schooling to to young women or something like that, but actually like you know programs to try and increase the number of women who are in the the you know, uh, na- you know, national representative body and, and all, all sorts of other things like that, you know, and, uh, it seems like what they were trying to do was bring Afghanistan up to their vision of a modern state, like a modern European style state, even, uh, as quickly as possible. Right. I've, I've, read descriptions of of how you know political scientists these days will will say that they actually have almost a recipe for how representative government should work and sometimes this you know so that they can they can instantly write a constitution uh for another country and and a lot of times this is brought out in 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 um uh criticism of the united states constitution and our system uh because they'll they'll claim that there's been a lot of uh, and i'm going off you know some political scientists say this i'm not saying all of them do uh but that that they'll they'll go off of what's been learned since the united states was formulated to say that that the way that these should be formed uh is very different and they almost have have cookie cutter constitutions that that they they say will work in 
in Africa or work in Europe. And, you know, this this actually isn't a new idea like uh, the Romans had, um, you know, like city charters and things like that, that you could almost fill in the blanks. Like our city is named this, the stuff is named this, and, and people, people uh, went for it. But, um, but, you know, there was, I think, a fundamental difference between what was attempted by the international community there and what you described earlier, but also a similarity. Because you said earlier that, you know, the British invaded Afghanistan and the Russians invaded Afghanistan. And each time, you know, the, the country would come together and there'd be some centralized power uh, and they'd manage to, to fight them off. And this reminds me of a, a process in history called uh, peripheral state formation. That's uh, something something that, that some historians talk about where they say that um, – you know, when a, when a state manages to become very strong, it starts invading and fighting with its neighbors. Its neighbors start, uh, you know, becoming more centralized and adopting customs that help it to fight them off, right? And so having a powerful neighbor that's interested in what happens in your state actually interferes with uh, your method of self-governance and your, your ability to carry on your traditions because you now have to adapt your way of governance uh, and your way of mobilizing your population. Uh, to fight off those external threats. Uh, and so that I think that happened somewhat differently in this case, because not only did the United States have a national security interest, right, and the international community have a national security interest, uh, just in the same way that the, the Russians and, and British in the 19th century had had interests in the great game in Afghanistan. Um, but they also had this, this sort of uh, state teleology, right? Uh, teleology being the, the, the sort of deontic thing that – or the, the sort of thing that, that things tend to over time or that their purpose is, right? So this telos, this purpose, this end state that uh, all states are supposed to go for, right? That, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's Whig history, right? Right, Whiggish history or the, 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 um, the end of history, right, or this ideal state – that everybody was aiming for. So not only so what, when it, we come in to impose this, right? It's not just that we impose a state that is consistent with our national security interests, like okay, keep the Taliban out and don't host the um, Al Qaeda, and other than that, you know, kind of do what you want. But it's like no, you need to also have this and this. You need a centralized government. You need this military that's a national military that's going to glue your country together, uh, so that. So that it won't be all of these uh, different ethnic groups. You'll all be Afghans, and this will this will pull everybody together, and uh, we'll make it function with you know not on tribal militias, but with modern weaponry, with all these contractors. We'll provide you with the contractors. We'll provide you with the money for that, right? You need to do all of these gender parity initiatives. You need to do this sort of thing and that sort of thing, and um, and so we we tried to tried to bring it together as as the the sort of our ideal. Or the um, State Department's ideal, or international government's ideals of uh, what a state should be like, and it, and it seems to have failed badly. I mean, the proof is in the pudding and is in the eating, in the sense that 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 government has been uh, liquidated by the Taliban, right? But even before that, like the Afghan National Army was disproportionately like Tajik and Uzbek, right? The Pashtuns, yeah. who are the majority, or the if they if they're not the majority, then they're the plurality of of people in the in afghanistan uh, uh didn't sign up in large numbers and so uh you know the 
the interesting thing about that, uh, like, okay, clearly that failed. And, uh, you know, if some people might hold to the idea that what we were going for there was, was the ideal and I'm, uh, you know, or, or is the best form of government. Um, and whether you believe that or not, the fact of the matter is, is that, is that the plan to get there this way didn't work. Well, so part part of the problem, by the way, now is that whenever the Taliban, with the inception of the Taliban in 1995, uh, the Taliban was not, uh, this isn't just my own personal opinion, this is pretty much anybody who's an analyst on the situation, the Taliban didn't know how to rule. They were not very mm-hmm. good stewards of the country. They plunged it into civil war almost immediately. And the problem, and so what happened is they didn't really have any legitimacy, which is why it was so easy uh, to incite like, you know, this indigenous rebellion against them. The problem is now that they've taken over, it appears as if they've learned a few lessons about governance, which, mm-hmm. you know, if you ever want, if, you know, if the U.S. ever wanted to, like, dislodge them again, it's going to be 50 times harder because they may now have some legitimacy that they didn't have in 1995. Yeah. Well, people have tasted the alternative, and while the alternative had a lot of advantages that people liked, especially especially like educating women and and things like that, it had a bunch of disadvantages like the you know return of the countryside to militias and the uh sort of nonstop low low level warfare that killed so many people in the the rural areas that's been very well documented that that the alternatives you know don't look as good now so that the Taliban may may look better in comparison um but you know the thing that that you and I started talking about the other day in regards to this that I that I wanted to to bring up and and pivot to is you know there's this question when you're trying to impose a democracy on another country right uh we talked about democracy or a a plebiscite as something that gives legitimacy to a government um but there's also the sense in which a, a democracy is supposed to give control of the country to the people in the country right so that they're able to to make laws and to regulate what the the common life of the country is going to be. And if you have a, a template for the way in which society overall is supposed to work, that you think it is where every society needs to end up, that may include democracy, right? May include elections, but also includes a whole bunch of other, you know, specific guarantees of various things, right? Positive rights. Um, then there's a certain sense in which you've already decided uh, what the outcome of democracy is going to be, right? And so when you do that, there becomes this question of what the point of democracy is, right? Is the point of democracy to uh, you know allow a society to vote on those laws and norms uh, so that over time it can move toward that ideal? Or is the idea that different countries would have you know, different ways of living that they choose through the democratic process, right? Because if it's the former, and if it's if it's the sort of thing where you're, oh yeah, you're voting, but eventually you're all supposed to end up being kind of like Germany, right? Or kind of like right. France, then there's a, there's a serious question of what the point of the democracy is. Because uh, then the point of democracy is not to actually decide what the ends of your society are, but just to decide how your society is eventually going to get to those ends. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what, uh, the West in a lot of ways worships, uh, this form of liberal democracy. Mm-hmm. So dem- democracy in itself, especially in this form, it has a net, it has a very natural crusading aspect to it. 
Uh, and that, by the way, that's not specific to this time. Uh, even if you look back at like Athenian and Roman democracy, it just seems, you know, you develop a democratic form of governance. The first thing that you got to do is go tell other people how wonderful and amazing democracy is and make sure that they adopt it. I mean, this is essentially mm-hmm. what this is like. There, there are a lot of things that, uh, America and modernity has in common with like the Delian League. Now, if you go up to like Walter Lippmann, who we discussed in a previous podcast, he was the the information minister. Not he mm-hmm. was he was a member. No, sorry, he was a deputy member of the Office for Information in World War One. It was a propagandist for the U.S. government. In his book, Public Opinion, he says that democracy cannot exist in a vacuum because things outside it uh, always appear to be a threat to it. And therefore, and, and therefore uh, instead of allowing the world to come to it, democracy has to go to the world, which more or less is like the Bush doctrine. Right. Mm-hmm. And so one of the problems is, is that what you were talking about, this, this concept of democracy, where democracy in the Western sense and the idea that democracy must be carried to the rest of the world, it goes hand in hand with moral universalism, Right. Because mm-hmm. it's like you have this country and they're a democracy. And so we just sort of assume that and you by the way, this assumption that democratic societies will always mean more open societies that include more people is so it's sort of magically built into the way we think about democracy. Uh like in the West, one of the most bizarre things you see, and people don't really think it's bizarre, it's bizarre to me, are like the get out the vote campaigns, or like you know that that thing started in twenty twenty one called whenever we vote by Michelle Obama, right? And it's it's usually Democrat groups, but there's this idea that all we have to do, and this isn't new, this goes all the way back to the Progressive era. If we just expand the the base of people who can vote, people will vote for more openness and inclusion, and it really weirds us out whenever. Uh, people vote "quote unquote" the wrong way because it's like you right. put something you put something to a plebiscite, and then they vote on something like Brexit, uh, and all of a sudden, sort of the elites that actually run the society go around on the BBC and the Guardian saying things like, "Well, the people voted the wrong way," and so it's like you have a society where you put something to a vote, and they vote to exclude a certain part of the population because they're like racist against them or something, and and people seem genuinely befuddled, like how could that happen? I thought yeah. uh, I thought the democratic impulse uh, could only express our values. They don't really understand this lack of politics within our thinking about democracy. Like you said, you just we just assume that if you introduce democracy into a society, that eventually you know shake and bake, it's going to come out looking like modern day Berlin. Right. I think it's been one of I think one of the real shocks to the the conception that we were talking about uh, that was prevalent in the Bush administration has been the rise of popular democracy that is what what they're calling uh, illiberal democracy in various places uh, within the world, right? Because like, like PIS uh, in Poland and Viktor Orban in Hungary. Yeah, though I think that the initial groups that did this were were like the European component is is very surprising because uh, of the way people conceptualize Europe as being different from the rest of the world but like Turkey right Erdogan has moved in an, in a non-democratic direction more recently but he but, was democratically elected oh yes and and that was and there were and, and India has gone the same way right and they say with Modi's Modi, rise yeah, yeah is, is is sort of in a certain sense an illiberal democracy uh, I've heard different analysis like that applied to Indonesia a few years ago, though I think they've, you know, I, I'm not sure what's gone on there. Um, but the the, in you know, initial 
talk of that that you saw was that basically these countries having uh, expanding middle classes that are now uh, participating in a more complete way in democracy or more aggressive way in democracy that have, uh, say, more conservative uh, or populist values than the the you know uh, liberal or socialist parties that used to govern those countries, right? So the the um, you know, not not to say that the Modi government is not socialist by American standards. I think that it probably is to no small extent. Um, but or the uh, I think it's the BJP. Um, but that you know the 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 Congress Party that governed India for so very long was uh, you know especially in the early years more of an explicitly Fabian socialist party. Was that and, like the uh, successor party to Gandhi or? Uh, that was that was the party of Nehru. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, who was a Fabian Fabian socialist? Um, and, uh, and just to clarify for people, Fabian Fabian socialism is a, is a very like gradualist. Yeah, incremental. Type of social, it's, a, it's, it's named type after of Quintus Fabius, the, the Fabius the Roman delayer. Right. So it's it's like we need socialism, but we need it gently phased in over we, time. We need it tomorrow, the day after tomorrow. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like the Erdogan's party displaced the Kemalists who were, you know, fundamentally nationalist liberals, right? In, uh, you, you know, you you might. Leaning uh, a bit more towards socialism, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. But but definitely a a, a nationalistic modern party, right? Um, that, well, that um, wanted... Okay, so a modern secularist party. And the key with right. Erdogan is that Erdogan is not a secularist. He was, he yeah, was arrested for said... reciting Islamic poetry in 1995 in Istanbul. Yeah, I should have I should have been clearer in saying that they're liberal. What I meant was was secular and modernizing uh, along the lines of an early 19th century nationalist party. But you had this rise of these people taking democratic control and then changing these countries in a way that that was inconsistent with the expectations, say, of, of people who were advocating for liberal democracy in the 1990s. And then in Afghanistan, what you have is is not mere is that model. Uh, failing because it, the country actually went went back to a form of non-democratic government. Uh, but like I said, the question is if they if they had the sort of democratic government imposed from the outside, where so much of the the governance system is being dictated by, uh, you know, the the governments of other countries through their their power of the purse and through their their involvement in the country and things like that. Uh, you know, is that more of a democratic society or is that more of a liberal democratic society or is that more of a liberal society imposed from the outside and so it you know kind of questions there with how that that was formulated speak to the question of exactly how much power uh over the the country like a, a democratic government should have or, or whether 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 in the presence of of you know the sort of uh elite class that's able to dictate so much of the governance of of a country uh democracy you know really means something uh let me by the way i want to on afghanistan i want to clarify something in my position my theory of afghanistan and why it ended mm -hmm. up the way it did and where it's going so i don't naively assume that america could have just left afghanistan alone after the initial invasion mm -hmm. right because there yeah. is this so there is this almost euphoric joint operation uh, where JSOC uh, hangs out with the Northern Alliance and they successfully actually, they oust the Taliban from Afghanistan. 
And now the U the thinking in the U.S. State Department under uh, uh, Bush and Cheney is that, okay, well, if we just leave now, the Taliban's just going to march right back in. And guess what? They're right. And it's because the, Tal mm -hmm. <laughs> the Taliban is uh, well-armed because we spent all this time arming the Mujahideen in the 80s. You know, they made a Rambo movie about it. Uh, yeah. That Rambo we movie is dedicated to the Mujahideen. We made Charlie them the Wilson's War, which uh, was Wilson's made later, War. kind of takes a more a more balanced take to that. But interestingly, Charlie Wilson's War, which is about supplying all of that weaponry, um, you know, the ending to that is that the gov the U.S. government isn't um, willing to spend a bunch of money reconstructing Afghanistan. Yeah, they um, were they promised uh, schools and pipelines and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And what's interesting about that is that that's still very clearly in the sort of uh, uh, end of history vein. Because the idea there is like, well, the Taliban would never have risen to power if we had just gone in and helped them uh, achieve the things that they want, that everybody wants, right? Well, uh, we did something very dishonest that dishonest moderns do, where it's mm -hmm. like, I honestly think Afghanistan would have been better off, better off if whenever we intervene in Afghanistan, we would have done what almost every state in the history of humanity does, which is we are intervening mm -hmm. to get to oust the Taliban from Afghanistan, and we're doing it for us, right? Right. Osama bin Laden, like Osama bin Laden screwed with us, so we're invading, we're ousting this government, we're doing it for us. But you can't do that for a modern Western state. We're, we're ousting the Taliban for you. Uh, which mm -hmm. means we are now going to guide in the next government that comes in. So, like, first of all, I understand the Bush doctrine. I don't agree with the Bush doctrine, but the whole idea behind the Bush doctrine was, you know, the, the, the quote Bush himself gives about it is we fight them over there so we don't have to fight them over there, uh, over here, right? If we, mm -hmm. if, we, if we just oust the Taliban and we leave them alone, then the Taliban's going to come right back in. I don't know if that's entirely true because once the country, because the country was handed over to the Taliban uh, for the first time in 1995, because they were the only like armed faction capable of doing so by the time you get mm -hmm. to the, by the time you, you get them ousted in 2001, 2002, that's no longer true. And if we had, I really do think that if we had just left it to Afghanistan, been like, all right, keep out the Taliban, don't give them any safe Harbor. And if you do, then, you know, we'll be back here with another JSOC team. But we couldn't do that, and mm -hmm. we couldn't do it. And this is where big philosophical ideas enter onto granular policy decisions. Yeah. It, was, it was impossible for us to do that. And it's because we have something within our American DNA that is very, very old. It's partially related to this ancient democratic impulse outlined by Walter Lippmann, where, you know, you become a democracy and you have to spread democracy to everybody else and let them know how amazing and wonderful it is. And you Delian League everybody. And then as soon as somebody tries to leave the Delian League, you burn down their city. I think it was Noxos. Well, what happens is that ever since like the 1860s, uh, we've had, you know, back whenever the State Department had like 12 employees, uh, it, the guy that had it was a guy named William Seward. He's the guy who bought Alaska. Who bought Alaska. William Seward is is his like he's like a reformer pietist uh, who you know if you pay attention to this channel enough uh, I read too much Rothbard and I complain about pietists and reformers at great length. Yeah, Seward Seward goes around saying things like America has a divine duty to go to go about the world spreading the glories of republicanism. Mm -hmm. That never left our DNA. It's all the way up through World War I, making the world safe for democracy. It's all the way up to Fukuyama and the sort of euphoria <laughs> we have in the 90s in our policy with China. And it absolutely defined the policy in Afghanistan because the best possible thing we could have done, which would have resulted in the smallest amount of loss of life, 
would have been to help oust the Taliban and then not try to establish uh, a weird modern secular government on a place that has all these ancient tribal traditions and allow them to run their affairs. But immediately the pietist reformers of the 21st century start coming in and they're like, oh no, we need USAID to allocate however many dollars for like a gender parity program. Right. And that's the moral universalism that I'm complaining about, because what happens mm -hmm. as, soon as, as soon as you say, well, we should have like left Afghanistan alone. Yeah, I'm arguing with people that I love and respect and they'll sit there and go, well, you know, uh, what about the position of women in their society? And I'm like the position of women all over the world. There are places in Africa we're not intervening in where women aren't having right. a great time. It's, it's simply not it's not tenable or preferable to intervene in every instance of that. Uh, you know, we should have gone in with a clear goal. And I sound like I'm just parroting like, you know, John Stewart talking points or something during the Bush era, as much problems as I have with him. But I find it to be true. Yeah, which is funny because because uh, if if those are kind of the, the John Stewart points, right, uh, that's actually the the more liberal position back then. But the position you're kind of taking is the less liberal considered the less liberal position now. Well, uh, that's least, be, that's least, that's because during the Bush era. John Stewart and his partisans were the anti-war party, and then another party came in, and then now war's fine. Yeah, like the, the, the we, partisan dance of American politics so right. goes on like this. Yeah, and I'm and I and when I say liberal in that statement, I mean liberal in the context of American politics, which will confuse yeah, yeah. the hell out of people outside of the United States. But where where liberal kind of means more left wing, such such as we have a left wing. Um, but um, uh, you know, it's it's interesting because you said you. You talk about it that way, and it's almost like, okay, you know, our reason for invading is to get Osama bin Laden and oust the Taliban, but we can't just say that. We can't bring ourselves to just say that. And so we say, well, it's also to, to you know, to yeah. use Wilson's term. Then, making... then you're just invading people. What are you, Gilgamesh? Yeah. Like, yeah. And then, and then you become, you turn into, you're, you're making the world safe for democracy. So you're imposing a democracy. And you might say, well, you know, that's a pretext. Really, we're, we're invading to, because of these, these national security interests. Uh, but then the, the pretext becomes the reason for being there, right? By the time, by the time you're done. Right. And and it becomes something that that even if it wasn't the original reason for you being there, it's one of the motivations for all of these actions you're taking. And, you know, it seems very callous to 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 keep harping on gender parity. But the thing is, is that when you're looking back on a, a government like that, that failed to work. Right. And and uh, if, if you're saying, well, we should have still been in there. We should still have been supporting the Afghan government in order to keep them them functioning for, like, say, gender parity concerns. And I'm not saying that that I approve of what the Taliban does to to women and girls. Like, ob obviously, I'm an, a modern American who thinks that women should be in in freaking school, right? But uh, the you know the the thing is is that at the point where you're like, okay, we're going to we're going to impose this modern state and keep the Taliban out. The, what was necessary to do that was having U.S. soldiers over there and conducting a whole bunch of like drone strikes and bombings, right? So at the point at which you're like, well, you you should, you know, we need to to support all of those those things related to the modern state. The the question that I have to ask is like, okay, but what, with what body count, right? Because obviously you're going to have to use violence to keep that functioning, and the reason that we know that you're going to have to do that is because that's what we had to do for two decades and then when we quit doing it the taliban won right and and so you know that that's really the i think the very frank 
trade-off that we confronted after we attempted to to impose those things was, are we willing to continue killing Afghans in order to reform Afghanistan? And eventually we and uh, and and also, are we going to continue to willing to continue to lose American soldiers? And we answered uh, no to one or both of those questions or enough people in the United States and enough people in power. And that led to our withdrawal. So like, can I uh, let me inject one more layer on this, because we've been talking in yeah. the very like we've been talking in a very formalist register. And what I mean by mm-hmm. that is the, the the sort of the facade understanding of what was going on in Afghanistan. We've mentioned we mentioned this in the other episode we did, which I think was the second episode we ever did. Yeah. But what I mean by the formalist understanding of what's going on in Afghanistan is like, OK, we do got the U.S. government, not we. Uh, I was I took a bunch of history classes. In college, obviously, I mean, I have three degrees in history. Uh, obviously, I took a bunch of history classes. But one of the things I was always taught is that whenever you're speaking about the U.S. government, don't say we, say the U.S. government. And I still make that mistake. But anyway, so the U.S. government goes into Afghanistan, and they genuinely do go into Afghanistan to oust the Taliban. Uh, whatever you think about that and all the discussions we've been having previous, fine. But another thing that is going on, and something that is not new and it's not novel in the American tradition, is that uh, opening up the war, sto- war zone in Afghanistan for 20 years uh, creates an incredible opportunity for entrepreneurs. And that's because the government has the authority to print vulgar amounts of money and hand it out to contractors. And a lot of the times when you look at stuff like these gender parity programs, uh, you have this constant leaky bucket problem. Mm. And it's not it's not new, right? Uh, like in 1963, the American government passes the Pacific Railway Act, and it tur- you find out by the time of 1877, during like the Credit Mobilier scandal, uh, that eventually gets, you know, that ends Reconstruction effectively and gets uh, Grant out of office, is that uh, you have this small group of contractors who have basically very been cynically using uh, the, just the, immense amounts of money that the U.S. government is willing to throw at the idea of uniting the country with railroads, and they come up with this very inventive scheme to do it. Uh, the Nye Commission in the 1930s uncovers a very similar sort of behavior uh, in World War I, and they talk a lot about war profiteering uh, mm-hmm. all throughout American history, and then up to here. Uh, we know that there was quite, there. We know that no matter what anybody's opinion on COVID is, we know there was quite a leaky bucket problem with. Uh, yeah. With the, with the government recompense program for COVID funding. And the same thing happened in Afghanistan. So what happens is you have layers of people who participate and believe in things for different reasons. You have mm-hmm. a lot of Americans who are genuinely concerned for the project of gender parity in Afghanistan. And I can argue against them and say, you know, I can give like, you know, I don't know if like moral universalism is a driving policy for international as a driving factor for international policy is good. But I also mm-hmm. know most of that money isn't actually going to the gender parity program. Right. Which so is a, there's important. An, there's an enormous money bucket here too, right? Yeah. Uh, that, that everybody's trying to get a, get a piece of, right? And that's, that's been a, that was a known problem. And the thing is, is that when you have an objective like trying to create a modern state in Afghanistan, you have the interests that we were talking about, right? The the national security interests and the moral interests, and then the way that that gets formed and realized is is sculpted by the um, the interests of the the corporate entities that are involved and the lobbyists and the people making money as well because of the enormous sums that are involved. But that that kind of shows, I mean. 
what what was done and what kind of failed uh you know just to take this in a bit different direction um you know again we had the peripheral state formation concept and the concept of if if this is the the way, place that democracy ends up you know or that that uh, a liberal democracy is supposed to end up anyway what it, you know what would be the the point of democracy is it just to shepherd to that point or is it um or, or is there supposed to be a real function of democracy in choosing between different like common lives uh for countries and and so the the question i i counterfactual question i want to ask is you know imagine that the united states had gone in and just um you know instead of trying to impose trying to immanentize the eschaton right get to the the end which is product. very which is very much what they were doing yes right yeah which is the concept from from the political thought of eric Vogelin we've talked about before which is you have a that you know i'm i'm using it in a, a much more looser term because he was talking about communist or socialist revolution attempting to create a utopian state in the same way that the the eschaton right is the apocalypse is the end of the world when uh when Christ or the Messiah or or somebody comes back or or appears and ushers in uh, an era of utopia, right? Um, and he claimed that those the you know the the revolutionary socialist movements attempted to do that and in so doing, you know, destroyed the world uh, in many cases, destroyed a lot of societies. And I think that it's very clear that that's what happened. And so, um, in a, in another way, attempting to create this modern state, if you think that the modern state is, if not utopic, then is the best thing, you know, the, the ultimate form of government that, uh, and, and society that humans can achieve, then there's a sense in which if you're trying to hasten everybody to that as quickly as possible, you're monetizing the eschaton. But let's say that the United States and the international community, uh, have, or the United States government, the international community didn't do that in Afghanistan, if we had not done that. Right. And instead, we had created a government that was organic to Afghan society in a way that prevented the Taliban from coming back. Let's say that it, you know, let's say it does have a representative government, but the representative government chooses a whole bunch of things that are, you know, decentralized power. And, uh, you know, the the republic we created in Afghanistan or the U.S. government created in Afghanistan was still an Islamic republic, but let's say that it's even more Islamic, right, and that it's much more traditional and that it's consonant with their their civil society. Um, 100 years from now or 50 years from now, 100 years from now, 500 years from now, as the forces of, of modernity and the, you know, the internet gets introduced, as there's more electrification, as these things incrementally happen, right, does the government of Afghanistan and the society of Afghanistan end up converging on the ideal just more slowly, right? Uh, and and here the ideal, when I say the ideal, is the ideal we were describing. I'm not saying that that is actually the ideal, uh, but but regardless of whether or not that is an ideal or is the ideal that every society should be striving for, you know, if Afghanistan becomes more and more like Germany or more and more like France, because they're they're the late in the latest component of this uh, process of of modernization or of into the late capitalist postmodern position, right? Uh, does does Afghanistan end up converging on that inevitably? Is it supposed to converge on that? Uh, is it able, if it's democratic, to choose not to converge on that? Those are the questions I want to ask in that counterfactual space. No, I think what you get uh, in the case of something like Afghanistan. Uh, so first of all, 
we're want to very see in this part of the world uh, because the hegemonic ways of understanding both morality. So the hegemonic way of understanding morality in the West is secular. The hegemonic way of understanding economics uh, and technology is liberalism. And that is, you know, the mm-hmm. subject of liberalism is the individual and therefore the uh, ultimately everything is about individual rights and articulating society and government. So as to be conducive to the to the facilitating of individual rights of people expressing those rights. Yeah. Here's the thing. Because we live in those societies and we're surrounded by it, we live in them, we grew up in these school systems. Uh, I, you know, I'm about to sound a bit like a moral relativist, uh, which I know, you know, we spent the entire uh, Edgerton episode uh, pissing and moaning about. But I, you know, I, I occasionally I think the relativists do make a good point outside of like ending scientific racism. I mean, I do, I do think there are a couple of uh, good observations to be made. And one of those, the fact is like, we live in the West and we are brought up to look at our institutions as the best things possible. We have a bias against acknowledging the the fissures in our institutions. Now, because uh, the economy finds itself in a more dire position and because our politics is more contentious than it's been in a very long time, I think some people are starting to question some of the ideas that they've been raised with. But like, we tend to look at this and we see it not only as good, but we also tend to see it as inevitable, right? You know, mm-hmm. uh, I read, you know, I read Jacques Ellul too, and, you know, mankind can't resist technique and society's just going to keep advancing, advancing, advancing. I think yeah. what we miss, though, is that there are places in the world that have come up with their own conservative responses to that, but we're kind of conditioned to reject those out of hand as bad. And I'm speaking specifically in terms of like uh, internet censorship in places like Iran or Turkey. And I think mm-hmm. what you would get in the case of Afghanistan, like because if Af- is if Afghanistan uh, is going to organically from within itself develop uh, a more centralized kind of government, it's probably going to have uh, a conservative character that that represents its host its host population and not through that doesn't mean it's democratic it doesn't have to be democratic it's just like if it comes out of this population it's going to have some of those same morals and affectations what's it what's going to end up happening is like there are a lot of governments uh like iran like turkey that have responded to uh the creeping of western uh technological hegemony through censorship now Mm -hmm. We sit here in the West and we look at that and we're like, that's only bad, right? And that's because uh, every kid in school reads Fahrenheit 451. And whenever you learn about the Nazis, you learn about book bur- uh, book burning. And it's sort of just like when somebody talks about censorship, we we sort of sit here in the West and we're just like, that can only ever be bad. And I think there are plenty of good moral arguments against the idea of state-sponsored censorship. It it not only obviously can be abused, I can think of a million cases in which it has been abused, uh, but it's also probably one of the most common state tools in history for resisting outside influence. And though you may disagree with the act of censorship as a whole, it is one of the ways in which modern states do resist the vicissitudes of technology and the free market economy, especially whenever they're not dominant actors. Uh, in this constant global conversation about free trade versus fair trade, the people on the side of, of more mercantilist type protectionism are the smaller players. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're sort of bred in the West uh, because we come from these big economies that if we live in a free market economy, we win it because we own all the production. Uh, you, it's sort of easy. Unless to you're from Ohio. Well, yeah, but you're a part of this larger federal government that exploits you as much right, as it right, right. exploits, yeah. exploits some peasant. Uh, thanks, NAFTA. But like, uh, what ends up happening is 
it's easier for you to look at that because I know whenever I speak economics with with like really intelligent people that I really respect, they have just almost this knee jerk impulse. They look at that uh, and they're just like, well, why would they pass tariffs? Like, like, mm-hmm. like, isn't a tariff protectionism like do, isn't everything better with like a free market in the international scale? And I'm like, not when you're Turkey, not when you're Iran. Maybe the free exchange of ideas and goods doesn't always benefit your order. And I think with Afghanistan if it formed a more modern state, because I, I don't, I, I swear this whole podcast, I try to avoid doing Whig history as much as possible. Cause I don't think mm-hmm. it's like everybody starts out as cavemen and then they end as that atheist meme with the dude wearing the robe and the spaceships flying in the background. I think probably the next logical step for Afghanistan, if it doesn't just keep existing the way it's existed for centuries as what is basically a patchwork an ethnic patchwork society that's sort of loosely run with a skeleton government in Kabul, but not too much. If its government became more centralized, you know, because the rest of the world insisted uh, that the world has to treaty with a government and that government's going to be in Kabul, you're probably going to get something uh, that more resembles Turkey or Iran. Or I could be completely wrong because historically speaking, uh, large central governments in Iran are almost always sponsored by outside forces. And as soon as that outside funding leaves, the central government collapses, which you've seen happen a couple of times, most notably just this last year. And so if a central government does come about, maybe instead of reflecting the the conservative values of its people, maybe it'll reflect uh, the values of like of Western policy want goovers. Uh, that's possible, too. So yeah, I tend to. Did I answer your I, hypothetical or. I'm going to go ahead and answer my own hypothetical, which is, you know, I, I these days tend to take a. Uh, uh, to take the position that a lot of this social change that we see uh is the product of technological advancement and uh and of uh, the changes in the economic system that that lead to a certain situation where when you get high energy and you get the technology to to you know have the kind of capitalist society that we do that it tends to pull all these societies in a certain direction right wherever this is introduced and um So I think that when you come back to Afghanistan, like I said, 50, 100, 500 years, you see that it has been pulled very strongly in that direction. Uh, and I think to some degree that's inevitable. I don't think it's as inevitable as some people have, have made it out to be where like Elul, where it's completely irresistible. I think that there's still individual agency and group agency within that context. But I honestly don't know the extent of that, what extent of what's predetermined and the extent of what uh, that agency is. And I think there are lots of people that are operating because of ideology because they want to uh, to to impair that agency. And what I mean by that is that um, a lot of the people who, you know, the the, uh, you know, say the neoliberal movement or the the people who uh, think that that the form of government we were talking about the and the, the form of society that we were talking about, um, that those people see that as a a either some of them an almost unalloyed good and some of them just a process that's beneficial on a net basis, right? And uh, so they are working to try and eliminate the uh, things that that individuals and groups could do to try and, and resist those changes. And as someone who who is, you know, I, I don't see a morally 
defensible alternative to sort of uh, liberal capitalism just because it's so productive in comparison to every other system. Um, but I'm critical of a lot of aspects of that, right? I'm, I'm, you know, kind of an anti, I'm very much an anti-consumerist and very much the kind of person who thinks that, that your values should be more immaterial than material, right? Um, well, then there, then there becomes a question as to how much does the society make the man? If you have a society, which is, you know, its prime, uh, element is that it right. maximizes production. How can it not, but produce a society of consumers? Right. And that's and that's very difficult. Right. That that's literally puts me in, in a, a position where I, I, you know, find myself uh, finding the criticisms that I've had in the past of of other groups now apply to me. Uh, and what I'm thinking here is that, you know, I've always been very critical of the left because it seems like the left has a lot of criticisms of of modern consumer society. But then the alternatives that they give to modern consumer society are not the kind of alternatives that, frankly, most normal people uh, want to participate in. Their alternatives are not, you know, like the Soviet Union, for example, uh, is not something that most people would want to live in. Uh, I read a few years ago – or not a few, a few years ago. I think it was actually earlier this year or late last year. Um, the Dispossessed by Ursula K. Le Guin, right, which is a – I mean it's written by Ursula K. Le Guin, so you know it's – her politics are totally different from mine. But it's one of those things where just aesthetically you know the book's going to be excellent because she wrote it. I mean she's a genius uh, when it when it comes to, to creating art, and it describes an, an anarchist society, and that anarchist society – also doesn't you know it has a lot of attractive components to it but also doesn't seem like a society that most modern people would want to live in you not a society that most people living in american society today would choose over our society and uh and so uh you know my criticism has always been that 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 the alternatives presented by the left are worse than the thing they're trying to cure and now I find myself in a position where I'm criticizing liberal society, and the alternatives that I see arrayed are worse than the thing that I'm criticizing. Right? I look at any alternative, like uh, you know, Iranian society. Right? You could say is a right wing alternative to to liberal democracy, and they just beat a woman to death for not wearing a hijab, and I think that's horrifying. Right. I don't want that to be the kind of society that I live in. That's not the kind of society I want to create. Now, am I saying that it's my job to go over and and keep Iranian society from being like that? Well, I I don't see a path where, you know, my doing that a has any effect. And if it has any effect, does so in a way that that isn't kind of of worse than just leaving it alone, kind of like the the what we just said about gender parity in Afghanistan, right? That violence was basically necessary to try and close gender parity, and and it seems like uh, we eventually answered the question in the negative as as to whether we were willing to continue with that violence, right? But that violence we were doing has been substituted for by violence on the part of the Taliban, um, and and so these are these are very very hard trade offs, but I don't have an alternative. Uh, to you know this the the society in the United States, the societies in Europe that we're seeing, that is, I think most people, most modern people, would choose above those societies, and so I think that that's a very difficult question, and so uh, it you know I I I basically end what I'm saying there by stating that that's that's a very harsh criticism of myself that 
that what I've been saying for years to people on the left of, well, what's your alternative then could now be said to me. And I'm, I'm basically empty handed at the moment. Well, I don't think I'm empty handed. I'm just alone. Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's because I don't necessarily propose an alternative, but I propose a series of impulses that I think would fix the current situation that a lot of Western liberalism finds itself in. And I think a lot of that answer goes back to the ancients. Uh, and a lot of this has to do, I know you said we weren't really going to get into the, to a discussion of modern versus ancient freedom. The segue is sort of perfectly into it. And mm-hmm. what I mean by that is this. So if you read ancient Greek political literature, if you read Aristotle's politics, if you read, uh, Homer's Iliad, if you read the Odyssey, which make no mistake is political literature, especially mm-hmm. the Odyssey, which is like a tour of ancient Greek dystopias. And I'll talk about that here in a sec. Uh, one of the things you realize about the Greeks is that uh, one of the central con- organizing concepts of the Greek state is kinship. It is the family. Greek politics and the Greek understanding of politics was not individualistic. It was communal. It was it was articulated within terms of family and community. Uh, in the first book of uh, sorry, the first chapter in the book of uh, politics by Aristotle, uh, you cannot divorce the idea of the family from the state. Now, actually, Aristotle says that the, that uh, uh, in ta- in time so in temporality and linear time the family precedes the state but the state in nature is prior to the family mm-hmm. there's no way that you can uh articulate the state without the family or the family without the state they each sort of support each other but mostly it's like let's you know the state is made up of a bunch of families and what's so important about this is that in his concept of of democracy and how it works so aristotle has said that the essential element to the carriage of politics is friendship. Now, what he means by that is is proximity. It means it means everybody you're participating in the polis, the Greek city with, is somebody that you reasonably should be able to go meet face-to-face and speak to. You don't necessarily mm-hmm. have to be related to them, but you're going to be related to some of them inevitably. Uh, and that the larger and more abstract a democracy gets, uh, the more vulnerable that, uh, vulnerable it becomes simply to being preyed upon by oligarchs who want to mm-hmm. use democracy as this very immaculate mask for robbing the people, uh, which if that's not an accurate description of the way that some societies have gone, I don't know what is. Now, what's really, really important about that is this is a definition of freedom that is based on loyalty to family, loyalty to state. Uh, very unlike modern notions of liberalism, uh, patriotism is seen as a good, right? So it's like all the great liberal thinkers that we think about that we see as like scions, uh, cultural scions of our society, even people that I love and respect, you know, like, uh, I think it was George Orwell or no, 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 no. It was Bertrand Russell who said that like patriotism is a virtue of the vicious. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in in the ancient Greek mm-hmm. mind, this is an absolutely insane statement to make because right. without, with without patriotism, without a love of self, without a love of the ecos, without a love of the family, how could you ever have a state that's stable? Aristotle makes it very clear from the outset that it is the outcast that is actually uh, the agent of war in a society because they're the one with the least amount of stake in it. That's very much opposed to the modern day, related to something that Tom and I talked about in the cartoons episode. 
which is that uh, whenever you sacralize and make a hero out of the outcast, what you're saying is that society is the villain, and not just society, societal norms. And that brings with it its own pathologies, and it's no better an alternative in the end to the former. Yeah. And so you say, like, you look at liberalism, you say, I don't know of a better alternative. One of the things which liberalism has sort of robbed uh, from modern Western democracies are more arch are more conservative ancient articulations of the importance of family we are incredibly atomized uh there's all sorts of studies floating around out there that you can look up on the number of children who are disaffected uh from their families uh you can uh, look at the uh, explosion of the divorce revolution uh from the 60s all the way through today and it's been nothing it's done nothing but absolutely uh preyed on the health uh mentally of our society and part of that is because it's kind of impossible for us to articulate what aristotle believes is the core of political participation his version of freedom is not the freedom to participate in hedonic pleasures it's freedom to participate in the polis it's freedom to love and support one's own family and you know whenever you say something like it's freedom to love one's own country i can already hear you know christopher hitchens from beyond going oh that doesn't sound like any sort of real freedom at all but the definition of free, uh, freedom since uh, ancient times has changed quite a bit. It changed because of the Enlightenment. It became ad, it, it became uh, a tool of atomization. And I think that definition of freedom is what defines modern-day notions of liberal democracy. <clears throat> I'll say two things that I think come out of that, and then that's probably all, all for me for today. Um, you know, I think first what you said about the, the Greeks regarding an, an you know uh, patriotism or a lack of patriotism as or, or basically the the Greek response to Russell's statement right that it would sound like madness is is undoubtedly true because the Greeks were and their their city states were in constant states of you know low level warfare with one another so if you don't have patriotism you're just going to get smashed right you're going to get rolled over. And so in that political context, it's absolutely necessary to have that sort of um, uh, patriotism. But it seems like in the modern world, uh, you know, if you don't have that kind of, of constant low-level warfare happening with groups that are near you, patriotism kind of serves a, a different function. I think it's still beneficial, but it's also something that helps to uh, helps a place to retain its its own particular culture in the face of, of foreign influences uh, or influences. When I say foreign, I don't even necessarily mean from another country. I also just mean, you know, uh, things that are commercial commercialized and, and uh, uh, that don't have the same, say, depth as uh, folk or traditional culture. Uh, the other thing that I'd say is it's, it's interesting to, to uh, listen to a description of, of politics based on kin structures and uh, based on family, based on friendship, uh, and compare that to the modern state. And it seems like in the case of Afghanistan, the attempt to create a modern state there is an attempt to move from structures that are based on kinship and um, uh, uh, ethnicity and uh you know the the i think the fundamental unit in afghanistan is is sort of the 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 family and the village and the clan and the ethnic group um and it's something that 
that I think you said moves to a more abstract level and, and it's the process of, of creating a, a, a modern nation state is a process of the abstractification of that loyalty, right? Of it moving from those, those local and particular places to the, the central government itself. And, um, you know, it's not that there aren't downsides to, to that sort of strong ethnic allegiance. You can look at, at the Taliban massacring Hazara people in Afghanistan in the 90s and, and into the early 2000s as, um, uh, you know, the downside of that and what happens when that sort of, of ethnic regard goes from being a shield to being a sword against others. But, um you know that that's definitely the the process uh that that was was put onto afghanistan was that kind of movement of political loyalty and that kind of abstractification away from uh the the loyalty to group and so uh it it seems like that that is a key feature of attempting to move from from a society that is particular and governed by custom to one that's that's governed by a modern state yeah, I'm full. I'm fully uh, aware of the deficiencies that exist within uh, a kinship way of conceiving governance. But I also, I'm also sort of capable of sort of seeing it from the other side, as, especially after having uh, met and made such good friends with uh, people who live in societies that have something much more close to the ancient concept of uh, freedom and governance. And so, while we may at the same time look at them and say that this is obviously oppressive, this is absurd, we must also recognize that we're looking at them and saying, hey, this unelected uh, government bureaucrat has your interests in mind better than like your own uncle, right? Mm-hmm. Which, which is painfully absurd in its own faith, in its own fashion. Culture Camp is hosted by Sean and Gavin. It's recorded, produced, and edited by Tom. Our opening track is The Mountains Don't Care About You by Dr. Turtle, and our closing track is Freeze Frame by Stay Loose. You can contact us at culturecamp.cast at gmail.com. That's K-U-L-T-U-R-E-K-A-M-P.cast at gmail.com to send us comments, questions, and topic ideas. Be sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on Twitter at CultureCampCast, on Minds.com at CultureCamp, and thanks for listening.